0: Section 42 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Horatio, the advocates for the ancients will never allow that any modern philosophers have either thought or reasoned better than men did in former ages. Cleomenes, let them believe their eyes. What you say every man of sense may know, by his own reason, was in the beginning of Christianity contested and denied with zeal and vehemence by the greatest men in Rome. Celsus, Symmachus, Porphyry, Heracles, and other famous rhetoricians, and men of unquestionable good sense, wrote in defense of idolatry, and strenuously maintained the plurality and multiplicity of their gods. Moses lived about 1500 years before the reign of Augustus, If in a place where I was very well assured that nobody understood anything of coloring or drawing, a man should tell me that he had acquired the art of painting by inspiration, I should be more ready to laugh at him than to believe him. But if I saw him draw several fine portraits before my face, my unbelief would cease, and I should think it ridiculous any longer to suspect his veracity. All the accounts that other lawgivers and founders of nations have given of the deities, which they or their predecessors conversed with, contained ideas that were unworthy of the divine being, and by the light of nature only, it is easily proved that they must have been false. But the image which Moses gave the Jews of the supreme being, that he was one, and had made heaven and earth, will stand all tests, and is a truth that will outlast the world. Thus I think I have fully proved, on the one hand, that all true religion must be revealed, and could not have come into the world without miracle, and, on the other, that what all men are born with towards religion before they receive any instruction is fear. Horatio, you have convinced me many ways, that we are poor creatures by nature, but I cannot help struggling against those mortifying truths when I hear them started first. I long to hear the origin of society, and I continually retard your account of it myself with new questions. Cleomenes, do you remember where we left off? Horatio, I do not think we have made any progress yet, for we have nothing towards it but a wild man and a wild woman with some children and grandchildren, which they are not able either to teach or govern. Cleomenes, I thought that the instruction of the reverence which the wildest son must feel, more or less, for the most savage father, if he stays with him, had been a considerable step. Horatio, I thought so too, till you destroyed the hopes I had conceived of it yourself, by showing me the incapacity of savage parents to make use of it, and since we are still as far from the origin of society as ever we were, or ever can be in my opinion, I desire that before you proceed to that main point you would answer what you have put off once already, which is my question concerning the notions of right and wrong, I cannot be easy before I have your sentiments on this head." Cleomenes, your demand is very reasonable, and I will satisfy you as well as I can. A man of sense, learning, and experience that has been well-educated will always find out the difference between right and wrong in things diametrically opposite, and there are certain facts which he will always condemn, and others which he will always approve of. To kill a member of the same society that has not offended us, or to rob him, will always be bad. And to cure the sick and be beneficent to the public, he will always pronounce to be good actions. And for a man to do as he will be done by, he will always say is a good rule in life. And not only men of great accomplishments, and such as have learned to think abstractly, but all men of middling capacities that have been brought up in society will agree in this, in all countries and in all ages. Nothing likewise seems more true to all that have made any tolerable use of their faculty of thinking, than that out of the society, before any division was made, either by contract or otherwise, all men would have an equal right to the earth. But do you believe that our wild man, if he had never seen any other human creature but his savage consort and his progeny, would ever have entertained the same notions of right and wrong? Horatio, hardly, his small capacity in the art of reasoning, would hinder him from doing it so justly, and the power he found he had over his children would render him very arbitrary. Cleomenes, but without that incapacity, suppose that at threescore he was, by a miracle, to receive a fine judgment, and the faculty of thinking and reasoning consequentially, in as great a perfection as the wisest man ever did. Do you think he would ever alter his notion of the right he had to everything he could manage? or have other sentiments in relation to himself and his progeny than from his behavior it appeared he entertained when he seemed to act almost altogether by instinct? Horatio, without doubt, for if judgment and reason were given him, what could hinder him from making use of those faculties as well as others do? Cleomenes, you seem not to consider that no man can reason but a posteriori, from something that he knows or supposes to be true, What I said of the difference between right and wrong, I spoke of persons who remembered their education and lived in society, or, at least, such as plainly saw others of their own species that were independent of them and either their equals or superiors. Horatio, I begin to believe you are in the right, but at second thoughts, why might not a man with great justice think himself the sovereign of a place, where he knew no human creature but his own wife and the descendants of both? Cleomenes, with all my heart, but may there not be an hundred such savages in the world with large families that might never meet nor ever hear of one another? Horatio, a thousand, if you will, and then there would be so many natural sovereigns. Cleomenes, very well, what I would have you observe is that there are things which are commonly esteemed to be eternal truths that an hundred or a thousand people of fine sense and judgment could have no notion of. What if it should be true that every man is born with this domineering spirit, and that we cannot be cured of it but by our commerce with others, and the experience of facts by which we are convinced that we have no such right? Let us examine a man's whole life, from his infancy to his grave, and see which of the two senses to be most natural to him, a desire of superiority and grasping everything to himself, or a tendency to act according to the reasonable notions of right and wrong. And we shall find that, in his early youth, the first is very conspicuous, that nothing appears of the second before he has received some instructions, and that this latter will always have less influence upon his actions the more uncivilized he remains. From whence I infer that the notions of right and wrong are acquired, for if they were as natural, or if they affected us as early as the opinion, or rather the instinct we are born with, of taking everything to be our own... No child would ever cry for his eldest brother's playthings. Horatio, I think there is no right more natural nor more reasonable than that which men have over their children, and what we owe our parents can never be repaid. Cleomenes, the obligations we have to good parents for their care and education is certainly very great. Horatio, that is the least. We are indebted to them for our being, We might be educated by an hundred others, but without them we could never have existed. Cleomenes, so we could have no malt liquor without the ground that bears the barley. I know no obligations for benefits that never were intended. Should a man see a fine parcel of cherries, be tempted to eat, and devour them accordingly with great satisfaction, it is possible he might swallow some of the stones, which we know by experience do not digest. If twelve or fourteen months after, he should find a little sprig of a cherry tree growing in a field where nobody would expect it, if he recollected the time he had been there before, it is not improbable that he might guess at the true reason how it came there. It is possible, likewise, that for curiosity's sake, this man might take up this plant and take care of it. I am well assured that whatever became of it afterwards, the right he would have to it from the merit of his action would be the same which a savage would have to his child. Horatio. I think there would be a vast difference between the one and the other. The cherry stone was never part of himself, nor mixed with his blood. Cleomenes, pardon me, all the difference, as vast as you take it to be, can only consist in this. That the cherry stone was not part of the man who swallowed it so long, nor received so great an alteration in its figure, whilst it was, as some other things which the savage swallowed, were, and received in their figure, whilst they stayed with him. Horatio, but he that swallowed the cherry stone did nothing to it. It produced a plant as a vegetable, which it might have done as well without his swallowing it. Cleomenes, that is true, and I own that as to the cause to which the plant owes its existence, you are in the right, but I plainly spoke as to the merit of the action, which in either case could only proceed from their intentions as free agents, and the savage might, and would in all probability, act with as little design to get a child as the other had at cherries in order to plant a tree. It is commonly said that our children are our own flesh and blood, but this way of speaking is strangely figurative. However, allow it to be just, though rhetoricians have no name for it, What does it prove? What benevolence in us? What kindness to others in the intention? Horatio, you shall say what you please, but I think that nothing can endear children to their parents more than the reflection that they are their own flesh and blood. Cleomenes, I am of your opinion, and it is a plain demonstration of the superlative value we have for our own selves and everything that comes from us, if it be good and counted laudable. Whereas other things that are offensive, though equally our own, are in compliment to ourselves, industriously concealed. And, as soon as it is agreed upon that anything is unseemly, and rather a disgrace to us than otherwise, presently it becomes ill manners to name or so much as to hint at it. The contents of the stomach are variously disposed of, but we have no hand in that, and whether they go out to the blood or elsewhere... The last thing we did to them voluntarily, and with our knowledge, was swallowing them, and whatever is afterwards performed by the animal economy, a man contributes no more to than he does to the going of his watch. This is another instance of the unjust claim we lay to every performance we are but in the least concerned in, if good comes of it, though nature does all the work. But whoever places a merit in his prolific family ought likewise to expect the blame, when he has the stone or a fever. Without this violent principle of innate folly, no rational creature would value himself on his free agency, and at the same time accept of applause for actions that are visibly independent of his will. Life in all creatures is a compound action, but the share they have in it themselves is only passive. We are forced to breathe before we know it, and our continuance palpably depends upon the guardianship and perpetual tutelage of nature, whilst every part of her works, ourselves not accepted, is an impenetrable secret to us that eludes all inquiries. Nature furnishes us with all the substance of our food herself, nor does she trust to our wisdom for an appetite to crave it. To chew it, she teaches us by instinct, and bribes us to it by pleasure. This seeming to be an action of choice, and ourselves being conscious of the performance, we perhaps may be said to have a part in it. But the moment after, nature resumes her care, and again withdrawn from our knowledge, preserves us in a mysterious manner, without any help or concurrence of ours, that we are sensible of. Since then, the management of what we have et and drank remains entirely under the direction of nature. What honor or shame ought we to receive from any part of the product... Whether it is to serve as a doubtful means toward generation, or yields to vegetation a less fallible assistance, it is nature that prompts us to propagate as well as to eat, and a savage man multiplies his kind by instinct as other animals do, without more thought or design of preserving his species than a newborn infant has of keeping itself alive in the action of sucking. Horatio Yet nature gave the different instincts to both for those reasons. Cleomenes, without doubt, but what I mean is that the reason of the thing is as much the motive of action in the one as it is in the other, and I verily believe that a wild woman who had never seen or not minded the production of any young animals would have several children before she would guess at the real cause of them. Any more than if she had the colic, she would suspect that it proceeded from some delicious fruit she had eaten especially if she had feasted upon it for several months, without perceiving any inconveniency from it. Children, all the world over, are brought forth with pain, more or less, which seems to have no affinity with pleasure. And an untaught creature, however docile and attentive, would want several clear experiments before it would believe that the one could produce or be the cause of the other. Horatio, most people marry in hopes and with the design of having children. Cleomenes, I doubt not, and believe that there are as many that would rather not have children, or at least not so fast as often they come, as there are that wish for them even in the state of matrimony. But out of it, in the amours of thousands that revel in enjoyments, children are reckoned to be the greatest calamity that can befall them, and often what criminal love gave birth to, Without thought, more criminal pride destroys, with purposed and considerate cruelty. But all this belongs to people in society that are knowing and well acquainted with the natural consequences of things. What I urged, I spoke of a savage. Horatio, still the end of love between the different sexes in all animals is the preservation of their species. Cleomenes, I have allowed that already. But once more the savage is not prompted to love from that consideration. He propagates before he knows the consequence of it. And I much question whether the most civilized pair, in the most chaste of their embraces, ever acted from the care of their species as a real principle. A rich man may, with great impatience, wish for a son to inherit his name and his estate. Perhaps he may marry from no other motive, and for no other purpose but all the satisfaction he seems to receive from the flattering prospect of unhappy posterity can only arise from a pleasing reflection on himself as the cause of those descendants. How much soever this man's posterity might be thought to owe him for their being, it is certain that the motive he acted from was to oblige himself. Still here is a wishing for posterity, a thought and design of getting children, which no wild couple could have to boast of, Yet they would be vain enough to look upon themselves as the principal cause of all their offspring and descendants, though they should live to see the fifth or sixth generation. Horatio, I can find no vanity in that, and I should think them so myself. Cleomenes, Yet as free agents it would be plain that they had contributed nothing to the existence of their prosperity. Horatio, Now surely you have overshot the mark. Nothing? Cleomenes, know nothing, even to that of their own children, knowingly, if you will allow that men have their appetites from nature. There is but one real cause in the universe, to produce that infinite variety of stupendous effects and all the mighty labors that are performed in nature, either within or far beyond the reach of our senses. Parents are the efficients of their offspring, with no more truth or propriety of speech than the tools of an artificer that were made and contrived by himself, are the cause of the most elaborate of his works. The senseless engine that raises water into the copper, and the passive mash-tub, have between them as great a share in the art and action of brewing as the liveliest male and female ever had in the production of an animal. Horatio, You make stocks and stones of us. Is it not in our choice to act, or not to act? Cleomenes, Yes, it is my choice now, "'either to run my head against the wall, or to let it alone. "'But I hope it does not puzzle you much "'to guess which of the two I shall choose. "'Horatio, but do we not move our bodies as we list, "'and is not every action determined by the will? "'Cleomenes, what signifies that, "'where there is a passion that manifestly sways "'and with a strict hand governs that will? "'Horatio, still we act with consciousness "'and are intelligent creatures.' Cleomenes, not in the affair I speak of, where, willing or not willing, we are violently urged from within, and in a manner compelled not only to assist in, but likewise to long for, and, in spite of our teeth, be highly pleased with a performance that infinitely surpasses our understanding. The comparison I made is just, in every part of it, for the most loving, and, if you will, the most sagacious couple you can conceive, are as ignorant in the mystery of generation, nay, must remain, after having had twenty children together, as much uninformed, and as little conscious of nature's transactions, and what has been wrought within them, as inanimate utensils are of the most mystic and most ingenious operations they have been employed in. Horatio, I do not know any man more expert in tracing human pride, or more severe in humbling it than yourself, but when the subject comes your way, you do not know how to leave it. I wish you would, at once, go over to the origin of society, which, how to derive or bring about at all, from the savage family as we left it, is past my skill. It is impossible but those children, when they grow up, would quarrel on innumerable occasions. If men had but three appetites to gratify, that are the most obvious, they could never live together in peace without government. For though they all paid a deference to the father, yet if he was a man void of all prudence that could give them no good rules to walk by, I am persuaded that they would live in a perpetual state of war, and the more numerous his offspring grew, the more the old savage would be puzzled between his desire and incapacity of government. As they increased in numbers, they would be forced to extend their limits, and the spot they were born upon would not hold them long. Nobody would be willing to leave his native vale, especially if it was a fruitful one. The more I think upon it, and the more I look into such multitudes, the less I can conceive which way they could ever be formed into a society. Cleomenes. The first thing that could make man associate would be common danger, which unites the greatest enemies. This danger they would certainly be in, from wild beasts, considering that no uninhabited country is without them, and the defenseless condition in which men come into the world. This often must have been a cruel article to prevent the increase of our species. Horatio, the supposition, then, that this wild man with his progeny should for fifty years live undisturbed is not very probable, and I need not trouble myself about our savages being embarrassed with too numerous an offspring. Cleomenes, you say right. There is no probability that a man and his progeny, all unarmed, should so long escape the ravenous hunger of beasts of prey, that are to live upon what animals they can get, that leave no place unsearched, nor pains untried, to come at food, though with the hazard of their lives. The reason why I made that supposition was to show you, first, the improbability that a wild and altogether untaught man should have the knowledge and discretion which Sir William Temple gives him, secondly, that children who conversed with their own species though they were brought up by savages, would be governable, and consequently, that all such, when come to maturity, would be fit for society, how ignorant and unskilful soever their parents might have been. Horatio, I thank you for it, for it has shown me that the very first generation of the most brutish savages was sufficient to produce sociable creatures, but that to produce a man fit to govern others, much more was required. Cleomenes I return to my conjecture concerning the first motive that would make savages associate. It is not possible to know anything with certainty of beginnings, where men were destitute of letters, but I think that the nature of the thing makes it highly probable that it must have been their common danger from beasts of prey, as well such sly ones as lay in wait for their children, and the defenseless animals men made use of for themselves as the more bold that would openly attack grown men and women. What much confirms me in this opinion is the general agreement of all the relations we have, from the most ancient times, in different countries. For, in the infancy of all nations, profane history is stuffed with the accounts of the conflicts men had with wild beasts. It took up the chief labors of the heroes of remotest antiquity, and their greatest prowess was shown in killing of dragons and subduing of other monsters. Horatio, Do you lay any stress upon sphinxes, basilisks, flying dragons, and bulls that spit fire? Cleomenes, as much as I do modern witches, but I believe that all those fictions had their rise from noxious beasts, the mischiefs they did, and other realities that struck terror into man, and I believe that if no man had ever been seen on a horse's back, we should never have heard of centaurs. The prodigious force and rage that are apparent in some savage animals, and the astonishing power which, from the various poisons of venomous creatures, we are sure must be hid in others. The sudden and unexpected assaults of serpents, the variety of them, the vast bulk of crocodiles, the irregular and uncommon shapes of some fishes, and the wings of others, are all things that are capable of alarming man's fear. And it is incredible what chimeras that passion alone may produce in a terrified mind. The dangers of the day often haunt men at night with addition of terror, and from what they remember in their dreams, it is easy to forge realities. You will consider, likewise, that the natural ignorance of man and his hankering after knowledge will augment the credulity which hope and fear first give birth to, the desire the generality have of applause, and the great esteem that is commonly had for the merveilleux and the witnesses and relators of it, If, I say, you will consider all these, you will easily discover how many creatures came to be talked of, described, and formally painted that never had any existence. Horatio, I do not wonder at the origin of monstrous figures, or the invention of any fables whatever, but in the reason you gave for the first motive that would make men combine in one interest, I find something very perplexing, which I own I never thought of before. When I reflect on the condition of man, as you have said it before me, naked and defenseless, and the multitude of ravenous animals that thirst after his blood, and are superior to him in strength, and completely armed by nature, it is inconceivable to me how our species should have subsisted. Cleomenes, what you observe is well worthy our attention. Horatio, it is astonishing. What filthy, abominable beasts are lions and tigers! Cleomenes, I think them to be very fine creatures. There is nothing I admire more than a lion. Horatio, we have strange accounts of his generosity and gratitude, but do you believe them? Cleomenes, I do not trouble my head about them. What I admire is his fabric, his structure, and his rage, so justly proportioned to one another. There are order, symmetry, and superlative wisdom to be observed in all the works of nature, But she has not a machine, of which every part more visibly answers the end for which the whole was formed. Horatio, the destruction of other animals. Cleomenes, that is true, but how conspicuous is that end, without mystery or uncertainty? That grapes were made for wine, and man for society, are truths not accomplished in every individual. But there is a real majesty stamped on every single lion, at the sight of which the stoutest animals submit and tremble. When we look upon and examine his massy talons, the size of them, and the labored firmness, with which they are fixed in and fastened to that prodigious paw, his dreadful teeth, the strength of his jaws, and the width of his mouth equally terrible, the use of them is obvious. But when we consider, moreover, the make of his limbs, the toughness of his flesh and tendons, The solidity of his bones, beyond that of other animals, and the whole frame of him, together with his never-ceasing anger, speed, and agility, whilst in the desert he ranges king of beasts. When I say we consider all these things, it is stupidity not to see the design of nature, and with what amazing skill the beautiful creature is contrived for offensive war and conquest. Horatio, you are a good painter. But after all, why would you judge of a creature's nature from what it was perverted to, rather than from its original, the state it was first produced in? The lion in paradise was a gentle, loving creature. Hear what Milton says of his behavior before Adam and Eve. As they sate, reclined on the soft downy bank, damasked with flowers. Unquote. About them frisking played all beasts of the earth, since wild, and of all chase and wood or wilderness... Forest or den. Sporting the lion ramped, and in his paw dandled the kid. Bears, tigers, ounces, pards, gambled before them. What was it the lion fed upon? What sustenance had all these beasts of prey in paradise? Cleomenes, I do not know. Nobody who believes the Bible doubts but that the whole state of paradise and the intercourse between God and the first man were as much preternatural as the creation out of nothing, and therefore it cannot be supposed that they should be accounted for by human reason, and if they were, Moses would not be answerable for more than he advanced himself. The history he has given us of those times is extremely succinct, and ought not to be charged with anything contained in the glosses and paraphrases that have been made upon it by others. Horatio, Milton has said nothing of paradise but what he could justify from Moses. Cleomenes, it is nowhere to be proved, from Moses, that the state of innocence lasted so long that goats or any vivaporous animals could have bred and brought forth young ones. Horatio, you mean that there could have been no kid? I should never have made that cavil in so fine a poem. It was not in my thoughts. What I aimed at in repeating those lines was to show you how superfluous and impertinent a lion must have been in paradise and that those who pretend to find fault with the works of nature might have censored her with justice for lavishing and throwing away so many excellencies upon a great beast to no purpose. What a fine variety of destructive weapons, would they say, what prodigious strength of limbs and sinews are here given to a creature? What to do with? To be quiet and dandle a kid. I own that to me, this province, the employment assigned to the lion, seems to be as proper and as well chosen as if you would make a nurse of Alexander the Great. Cleomenes, you might make as many flights upon a lion now if you saw him asleep. Nobody would think that a bull had occasion for horns, who had never seen him otherwise than quietly grazing among a parcel of cows, but if one should see him attacked by dogs, by a wolf, or a rival of his own species, he would soon find out that his horns were of great use and service to him. The lion was not made to be always in paradise. Horatio. There I would have you. If the lion was contrived for purposes to be served and executed out of paradise, then it is manifest from the very creation that the fall of man was determined and predestinated. Cleomenes. Foreknown it was. Nothing could be hid from omniscience, that is certain. But that it was predestinated so as to have prejudiced, or anywise influenced the free will of Adam, I utterly deny. But that word, predestinated, has made so much noise in the world, and the thing itself has been the cause of so many fatal quarrels, and is so inexplicable, that I am resolved never to engage in any dispute concerning it. Horatio, I cannot make you, but what you have extolled so much must have cost the lives of thousands of our species, and it is a wonder to me how men when they were but few, could possibly defend themselves, before they had firearms, or at least bows and arrows, for what number of naked men and women would be a match for one couple of lions? Cleomenes, yet here we are, and none of those animals are suffered to be wild in any civilized nation. Our superior understanding has got the start of them. Horatio, my reason tells me it must be that, but I cannot help observing that when human understanding serves your purpose to solve anything, it is always ready and full-grown, but at other times knowledge and reasoning are the work of time, and men are not capable of thinking justly until after many generations. Pray, before men had arms, what could their understanding do against lions, and what hindered wild beasts from devouring mankind as soon as they were born? Cleomenes, Providence. Horatio, Daniel indeed was saved by miracle, but what is that to the rest of mankind? Great numbers, we know, have, at different times, been torn to pieces by savage beasts. What I want to know is, the reason that any of them escaped, and the whole species was not destroyed by them, when men had yet no weapons to defend, nor strongholds to shelter themselves from the fury of those merciless creatures. Cleomenes, I have named it to you already, Providence. Horatio, but which way can you prove this miraculous assistance? Cleomenes, you still talk of miracles, and I speak of Providence, or the all-governing wisdom of God. Horatio, if you can, demonstrate to me how that wisdom interposed between our species and that of lions, in the beginning of the world, without miracle, any more time than it does at present, Eris mihi magnus Apollo, for now, I am sure, a wild lion would prey upon a naked man, as soon, at least, as he would upon an ox or an horse. Cleomenes, will you not allow me that all properties, instincts, and what we call the nature of things, animate or inanimate, are the produce, the effects of that wisdom? Horatio, I never thought otherwise. Cleomenes, then it will not be difficult to prove this to you, Lions are never brought forth wild, but in very hot countries, as bears are the product of the cold. But the generality of our species, which loves moderate warmth, are most delighted in the middle regions. Men may, against their wills, be inured to intense cold, or by use and patience, accustom themselves to excessive heat. But a mild air and weather between both extremes, being more agreeable to human bodies, the greatest part of mankind would naturally settle in temperate climates, and with the same conveniency as to everything else, never choose any other. This would very much lessen the danger men would be in from the fiercest and most irresistible wild beasts. Horatio, but would lions and tigers in hot countries keep so close within their bounds, and bears in cold ones, as to never straggle or stray beyond them? Cleomenes, I do not suppose they would and men as well as cattle, have often been picked up by lions, far from the places where these were whelped. No wild beasts are more fatal to our species than often we are to one another, and men pursued by their enemies have fled into climates and countries which they would never have chose. Avarice, likewise, and curiosity have, without force or necessity, often exposed men to dangers which they might have avoided, if they had been satisfied with what nature required and labored for self-preservation in that simple manner which creatures less vain and fantastical content themselves with. In all these cases I do not question, but multitudes of our species have suffered from savage beasts and other noxious animals, and on their account only I verily believe it would have been impossible for any number of men to have settled or subsisted in either very hot or very cold countries before the invention of bows and arrows or better arms, But all this does nothing to overthrow my assertion. What I wanted to prove is that all creatures choosing by instinct to that degree of heat or cold which is most natural to them, there would be room enough in the world for man to multiply his species for many ages without running almost any risk of being devoured either by lions or by bears, and that the most savage man would find this out without the help of his reason. This I call the work of providence, by which I mean the unalterable wisdom of the supreme being, in the harmonious disposition of the universe, the fountain of that incomprehensible chain of causes on which all events have their undoubted dependence. Horatio, you have made this out better than I had expected, but I am afraid that what you alleged as the first motive toward society is come to nothing by it. Cleomenes, do not fear that. There are other savage beasts, against which men could not guard themselves unarmed, without joining and mutual assistance. In temperate climates, most uncultivated countries abound with wolves. Horatio, I have seen them in Germany. They are of the size of a large mastiff, but I thought their chief prey had been sheep. Cleomenes, anything they can conquer is their prey. They are desperate creatures, and will fall upon men, cows, and horses as well as upon sheep, when they are very hungry. They have teeth like mastiffs, but besides them they have sharp claws to tear with, which dogs have not. The stoutest man is hardly equal to them in strength, but what is worse, they often come in troops, and whole villages have been attacked by them. They have five, six, and more whelps at a litter, and would soon overrun a country where they breed, if men did not combine against and make it their business to destroy them. Wild boars likewise are terrible creatures that few large forests and uninhabited places in temperate climates are free from. Horatio, those tusks of theirs are dreadful weapons. Cleomenes, and they are much superior to wolves in bulk and strength. History is full of the mischief they have done in ancient times and of the renown that valiant men have gained by conquering them. Horatio, that is true, but those heroes that fought monsters in former days were well-armed, at least the generality of them. But what could a number of naked men, before they had any arms at all, have to oppose the teeth and claws of ravenous wolves that came in troops? And what impression could the greatest blow a man can strike make upon the thick bristly hide of a wild boar? Cleomenes, as on the one hand I have named everything that man has to fear from wild beasts, So, on the other, we ought not to forget the things that are in his favor. In the first place, a wild man inured to hardship would far exceed a tame one in all feats of strength, nimbleness, and activity. In the second, his anger would sooner and more usefully transport and assist him in his savage state than it can do in society, where, from his infancy, he is so many ways taught and forced in his own defense to cramp and stifle with his fears the noble gift of nature. In wild creatures we see that most of them, when their own life or that of their young ones is at stake, fight with great obstinacy, and continue fighting to the last, and do what mischief they can whilst they have breath, without regard to their being overmatched, or the disadvantages they labor under. It is observed likewise, that the more untaught and inconsiderate creatures are, the more entirely they are swayed by the passion that is uppermost, Natural affection would make wild men and women too sacrifice their lives and die for their children, but they would die fighting, and one wolf would not find it an easy matter to carry off a child from his watchful parents if they were both resolute, though they were naked. As to man's being born defenseless, it is not to be conceived that he should long know the strength of his arms without being acquainted with the articulation of his fingers, or at least, what is owing to it, his faculty of grasping and holding fast, and the most untaught savage would make use of clubs and staves before he came to maturity. As the danger men are in from wild beasts would be of the highest consequence, so it would employ their utmost care and industry. They would dig holes and invent other stratagems to distress their enemies and destroy their young ones. As soon as they found out fire, they would make use of that element to guard themselves and annoy their foes. By the help of it, they would soon learn to sharpen wood, which presently would put them upon making spears and other weapons that would cut. When men are angry enough with creatures to strike them, and these are running away or flying from them, they are apt to throw at what they cannot reach. This, as soon as they had spears, would naturally lead them to the invention of darts and javelins. Here, perhaps, they may stop a while, but the same chain of thinking would in time produce bows and arrows. The elasticity of sticks and boughs of trees is very obvious, and to make strings of the guts of animals, I dare say, is more ancient than the use of hemp. Experience teaches us that men may have all these and many more weapons, and be very expert in the use of them before any manner of government, except that of parents over their children, is to be seen among them. It is likewise very well known that savages furnished with no better arms when they are strong enough in number, will venture to attack and even hunt after the fiercest wild beasts, lions and tigers not excepted. Another thing is to be considered, that likewise favors our species, and relates to the nature of the creatures, of which in temperate climates man has reason to stand in bodily fear of. Horatio, wolves and wild boars? Cleomenes, yes, That great numbers of our species have been devoured by the first is uncontested, but they most naturally go in quest of sheep and poultry, and, as long as they can get carrion or anything to fill their bellies with, they seldom hunt after men or other large animals, which is the reason that in the summer our species, as to personal insults, have not much to fear from them. It is certain likewise that savage swine will hunt after men, and many of their moths have been crammed with human flesh, but they naturally feed on acorns, chestnuts, mast, and other vegetables, and they are only carnivorous upon occasion and through necessity when they can get nothing else, in great frosts, when the country is bare and everything is covered with snow. It is evident, then, that human creatures are not in any great and immediate danger from either of these species of beasts, but in hard winters, which happen but seldom in temperate climates. But as they are our perpetual enemies, by spoiling and devouring everything that may serve for the sustenance of men, it is highly necessary that we should not only be always upon our guard against them, but likewise never cease to assist one another in routing and destroying them. End of section 42